0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S Y L V A N 29.com. So, this is a letter I got today from Hopkins Dear Dylan, you have been approved as a kidney donor by our multidisciplinary transplant team at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Please notify us if you have a serious illness. Hi, I'm Dylan Matthews. I host this podcast, and two years ago, I gave my kidney away to a complete stranger. I matched with someone. (laughs) Um, There's someone who could use my kidney, and so that's exciting. So I did it. The surgery was fine, and the recovery was pretty quick. But I gave away a major organ. And a fair question to ask is, why? It all connects back to this movement, a movement that's only really existed for a couple of years, but it's been growing and spreading all across the world. It's called effective altruism. In its simplest form, effective altruism says, hey, we should be trying to do good in the best, most effective ways possible. Today, we'll use kidney donation to flesh out that definition a little bit more. Kidney donation gets at some of the logical arguments that effective altruism makes and some of the sacrifices it suggests that people could make. And it's something that a fair number of effective altruists do. Alexander Berger is the managing director of the Open Philanthropy Project in San Francisco. And he's the first person to turn me on to both kidney donation and effective altruism in general. So we thought it would be good to bring him on to explain the idea. He starts with a thought experiment.
1: There's a famous example of a child drowning in a pond where if you just bought a new suit and you're walking by a pond where you see a child drowning you could save them, but it would ruin your expensive new suit, most people will think it's really obvious that you should do that. But similarly, if you could donate a few thousand dollars to a really effective charity that could save lives in other countries or in other places where it's much cheaper to do so, aren't you similarly like walking by the drowning child in the world in that pond? And so it's it's trying to sort of analogize those arguments to get it off the ground.
0: Effective altruism is all about cost-benefit analysis. If the cost is my suit, and the benefit is a child's life being saved, then the benefit outweighs the cost. And I should ruin
1: my suit. And the same logic applies for a kidney. On the cost side, the, the risk of death in surgery is around 1 in 3,000 for like the average donor. That's on the order of magnitude of like giving birth, or other things that like lots of people undergo for everyday reasons in their lives.
0: The long-term effects aren't totally clear. But the current science suggests that you can live pretty well without one of your kidneys. So the cost to you is low ish.
1: But on the benefit side, the best evidence I could find suggested that getting a transplant rather than staying on dialysis leads somebody to have 10 more years of life on average.
0: 10 more years. That's a big part of a person's life.
1: Also, dialysis is really painful and it's exhausting. So very few people can work when they're on dialysis. It's, like, costly for the medical system to maintain. And, frankly, they just they die younger than they would if they could get a transplant. And so that, that was sort of on the benefit side for me. So that's one part of effective altruism. You're giving
0: more, especially when the cost of giving is low and the benefits are high. But the other part is about making sure that you're giving well, making sure that the benefits are as big as they can be, which seems obvious. When I talk about effective altruism with normal people who have not heard of this, like one of their first questions is like, how is this different from just charities generally? Like I think local art nonprofits think they're trying to make the world a better place. What is different in how the set of people in effective altruism think about those
1: questions from how philanthropies have generally thought about it? You know a lot of the people in the effective altruism community try to give at least ten percent of their income to charity, and the sort of American average is about two percent. And so I think there's an idea that like we should be more generous. So that's part of it. And then the other part I'd say is that like sort of this piece around using evidence and reason. And so trying to think hard and quantitatively about how much value is the local arts nonprofit adding to the world compared to how much value could we add by doing sort of really, really basic public health services in low-income countries, for instance. Thinking hard and analytically and critically about those questions and not just saying like, well, you know, we're all well-intentioned here and so that's enough.
0: For a long time, Alexander worked for an organization called GiveWell. They're a nonprofit that tries to figure out how much value different charities add to the world. He now works for Open Philanthropy, a connected group that's made nearly $600 million in grants to what it considers effective charities, activists, and researchers at universities. But I wanted to know how Alexander got interested in this work to begin with.
1: I came across GiveWell while I was in college. Um, And I I took a term off from school and I went and lived in India. I volunteered at a school. And every day on the way to school, I'd walk by these kids who were begging in the street. And I really wanted to do something to help the kids because they looked like they were in sort of desperate need. But I also knew that if I just gave them money, that would be an incentive for their parents to keep them out of school. And so I thought like, okay, when I get back to the U.S., I'll just find the best charity that I can and donate like a few hundred dollars to it. I ended up, I think I literally Googled best charity and I found the GiveWell blog and they were asking these questions about like how do we know different programs work? What is the evidence? How cost-effective are different charities? How much does it cost to save a life? In a sort of real analytical way, not in sort of a slogany- way. And I thought that was totally awesome.
0: If you go to the GiveWell site, you can see exactly how they evaluate charities. They have studies, randomized control trials, all kinds of research. And they can tell you which charities are doing a good job of achieving their goals. But they also ask you to consider what goals matter to you. Do you want to save lives? Do you want to lift people out of poverty? Do you want to help them escape some diseases that won't kill them, but will make them miserable? Givel has a fancy spreadsheet that helps you make those decisions. My producer Bird and I decided to pull it up and go through the process.
2: So we got this very colorful document
0: this looks like most spreadsheets that I open for work. There are sections that are bolded.
2: And then there's a whole bunch of tabs. A lot of
0: tabs. There is a very ominous tab called Moral Weights.
2: Ooh, let's open that tab. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of like the world's most depressing BuzzFeed quiz. Instead of asking you, do you prefer pizza or tarantulas? It's like, do you prefer to save someone's life? Or double their salary for a year. Then instead of telling you at the end, this is what Harry Potter character you are, it gives you kind of a measure of what you care about the most. So it looks like you kind of value different charities compared to each other. So, Dylan, compared to saving a life, do you think deworming someone is like a like a one or a ten out of a hundred?
0: Well, okay, so there's a lot of controversy over whether the deworming studies are true. So I'm going to put in a .0018 there.
2: So this one's like, would you rather save the life of someone who is...
0: We ended up having a long conversation about each one of these. Because it's hard to figure out how valuable it is to save someone's life versus doubling their salary. Eventually, we had the whole thing filled out. So...
2: So we've we've filled out the BuzzFeed quiz and we're now at the part where we find out which Disney princess Dylan is.
0: Right. So I'm the Disney princess that says over five year old is worth 80 percent as much as an under five year old.
2: This is such a like overwhelming Um, list of just values and choices.
0: But I don't know. There's a lot of money here and a lot of it is going to charities like this. I kind of feel like you have a duty to try to work through this stuff to figure out why it should be going to this organization and not this other organization.
2: But I don't know that I'm qualified to make that judgment.
0: I mean, you make decisions like that all the time. I make decisions like that all the time. Like you pay for life insurance and for property insurance. There's lots of of subtle decisions we make in life about how much we value money versus life. They're just rarely laid out this explicitly. So first you take a cold, hard look at your values. And then once you've decided, like, I think saving a three-year-old's life is more valuable than doubling a 30-year-old's salary for a year, you can look very specifically at charities that save children's lives and focus most of your donations there. But there are lots of ways to try to save children's lives. And so you need to pick an efficient one. The research on a site like GiveWell suggests that one way to get the most bang for your buck, the most children's lives saved, is by giving malaria bed nets to people. And that's because there's a lot of good research done to show that there's a return on that donation. The same process applies with donating a kidney. You can donate to a person you love, and that's fantastic. But there are ways to donate that generate even bigger returns. That's where donating to a stranger comes in. Because if you donate to a stranger, you can create a chain.
1: You, you ended up donating to start a chain too, right? Yeah. Um, So for for the folks at home
0: who have not spent their time in in the kidney donation literature,
1: so what do we mean by chain and what does it mean for six people to be on that? So the basic idea is that often people want to donate a kidney to a loved one, but they're not a good match. Let's
0: say I'm willing to give to my girlfriend, and I'm not a match, but Alexander is. I would give to your girlfriend. But I would still donate a kidney. I just wouldn't give it directly to my girlfriend. I'd give it to someone living in Illinois
1: or somewhere. And then that person's friend or loved one would give to the next person. And these could sort of go on indefinitely long. They usually end with a person who's extremely hard to match because if they aren't getting something from the end of the chain, that person's pretty unlikely to ever find a matching kidney.
0: Most people are more willing to give to someone that they love But if there's one person, like me or Alexander, who's willing to just give a kidney to a stranger, we can kick off a chain of four, or six, or eight kidney donations. The longest chain so far is more than 80 donations long.
1: Have you ever met your recipient? I've never met her in person, but we've corresponded. She's a math teacher in rural Pennsylvania. She has like teenage sons, uh, or they were teenage sons. We usually send each other like a quick email around the like anniversary. Man, I should I should do that more. I've sent like three emails with my recipient, but I have to be in better touch. <laughs> I kind of like the one year thing because it's like it's nice to be reminded that this person sort of exists and is out there doing well in the world. But I also, she was like a sort of random stranger assigned to my kidney. I don't I don't feel like a super deep personal connection. I've I like never thought, oh my kidney's like walking around in Pennsylvania, you know.
0: This kind of separation from the emotional side of things, it's both a strength and a weakness of effective altruism. On the one hand, emotional giving doesn't always lead to the most effective outcomes. But on the other hand, we're all humans, and it can be really hard not to go with our emotions.
1: Especially when things like kidney donation get real. My my parents weren't like, super ecstatic about me donating. People don't walk around knowing how safe it is and so I think they thought it was like a, a really weird kind of risky thing to undertake as a 21 year old. Right. We forgot to mention. Alexander was only 21 when he donated his kidney. During the psychiatric evaluation they kind of want somebody to vouch for you. The the psychiatrist told me that like as soon as she got on the phone with my mom, my mom just like burst into tears <laughs> because I think she was like, oh like my, my son is going to go do this like risky dangerous thing and like, I'll support him because it's something that's important to him. But I'm like not super excited about it. the The idea of like your kids making sort of voluntary risks for other people who who they're never going to meet doesn't necessarily seem like a great trade as a parent.
3: So I think this is emblematic of Dylan in many ways. I think he.
0: It's not just Alexander's family. My girlfriend Hannah was kind of nervous about my donation too. We interviewed her on the train on the way to my surgery.
3: He has a moral certainty that a lot of us lack, where he's really able to collect the information available and decide that something is a moral good. So in philosophy, there's this thought experiment uh, where there's a train coming, and the train can go in one of two directions, and you control which direction the train comes in. And on one track, there are 10 people and if the train goes towards them, they will die. On the other track, there's just one person. If the train goes towards them, they will die. And so most people agree that what you should do is move the train so it just kills one person and you save 10 lives, right? Like That seems pretty straightforward. But then imagine that the one person on that track alone is your child or your mother or sister, someone you love, someone you're you're really close to, and the 10 people are strangers, what do you do? I think the logical thing is to do exactly the same, right? You kill one person, you save 10 lives, right? Like the moral math hasn't changed just because you happen to know and love one of the people involved but I think most people would struggle with that. And split-second decision, I would save the person I love. Dylan would kill the person he loves. <laughs> like Without a doubt, he just has that like clear vision about what the right thing to do is, beyond just what the perhaps selfish thing to do is. It can be why he and I sometimes disagree about things like donating a major organ to a stranger um, because I'm focused on the person I know, the person I care about, and he's focused on the stranger um, and the chain and all of the lives that are going to be saved.
0: She's right. I definitely would kill one person, even a person I love, to save 10. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It feels pretty rational. But after the break, I'll talk to Alexander about how rational altruism really has to be. Gotham City needs you, that. This is Police Chief Greg, sir, only hoping you can hear my voice. If you go on YouTube and type in Bat Kid, you can pull up a video from the Make-A-Wish Foundation. In it, you see this five-year-old leukemia survivor. He has to be the Bat Kid for a day.
1: Urgent. Please, Cape Crusader, we need you. And bring the Bat Kid
0: you got to run around San Francisco completing missions, walking in a parade, dynamic duo. duo, I'm afraid your old nemesis, the Riddler. Fighting the Riddler. With enough dynamite to blow the This is wonderful and sweet, but it also costs thousands of dollars. For some people in the effective altruism movement, maybe even for me, this feels inefficient. You could spend thousands of dollars to give one kid one good day, Or you could use that same money to save several kids' lives. Alexander Berger understands that perspective. But he doesn't necessarily agree with how hard some effective altruists can be on stuff like Make-A-Wish.
1: The the reason that I don't love to think in this way is because I think it's better to think about sort of growing the pie in some sense. And so that point I made earlier about how the average American gives about 2% of their income to charity and effective altruists aim to give at least 10%, I think that's a really useful idea because it's not to say that you need to stop doing those other things like if that makes you feel good or warm or like you like to support those organizations i'm not here to tell you not to do that i'm here to tell you that also you can achieve really huge benefits for the poorest people in the world by giving more and and taking it a little bit more seriously and thinking hard about how to do it in the way that's going to have the best impact
0: an example i sometimes use with this is that so I think most of my charitable giving i give to to against malaria which gives bed nets to prevent malaria and to give directly which just gives cash to people in sub-saharan africa but i also give like maybe a hundred bucks a year to the animal shelter that i got my cat from and it's not that i think that's super effective i think even if i just like wanted to help animals i would like give to another charity but like I love my cat and like it makes me feel good to to support the place. But like I just think of those as different buckets.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think like there's lots of civic institutions that get by on philanthropy and effective altruists and some of the proponents wanna like sort of set them up as the opponents of effective philanthropy. And I'm more just like we yeah, we should mostly be growing the pie and getting a lot of people to give more. And I think when you think about it as coming out of a different bucket, it's just my main argument is like this bucket of like really helping the world should be a lot bigger than it is.
0: There are a lot of ways to grow the bucket. You can move from thinking just about charitable donations to thinking about ways you can volunteer your time, or in my case, a bodily organ. Donating a kidney cost me next to nothing, and it's probably the single most valuable thing I've done in my life, not least because I'm lucky enough to be a journalist who has a platform I can use to encourage other people to donate to. Maybe even some of you listening to this right now will think about giving a kidney. That'd be fantastic. But growing the bucket takes other forms as well, like changing government policy or changing your career. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from climate change to prison reform to immigration and how effective altruism can reshape how we think about and tackle some of the hardest problems in our society. I know I'm excited. I hope you are, too. That was the first episode of Future Perfect. We have a bunch more coming your way every Wednesday for the next few weeks, so let us know what you think. Our wonderfully talented producer is Bird Pinkerton. Our editor was Amy Drozdowska. We owe many thanks to Jillian Weinberger for a lot of things. Our engineer is Jared Floyd. The tape from when I donated my kidney was collected by Joss Fong. Uh, she also made a whole video about it. It's fantastic. You can check it out on our YouTube channel. The music was by Chris Sabrisky and Pottington Bear. Future Perfect is made possible through a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. To read more of our reporting on effective altruism, check out vox.com slash future perfect.